is PodRequest, live from the heart of Brooklyn. PodRequest is an hour-long podcast about everything in and relating to technology. Starring three techno experts, Eric Newman, hi, Chris Grabowski, hey, and Tyler Dinner. Hello there. This week's episode, The Inbox. Hello, everybody, and welcome to yet another pull request. My name is Eric Newman, and to my left is the wonderful, the incorrigible, the beautiful, the smart, the sexy Chris Grabowski. Hi, how are you? I am doing fantastic, minus the LAR trip I had today. Oh, yes, you rode the train. We'll get to that in a second. And to your left is the wonderful Tyler Dinner. How are you? I'm good, despite the LAR trip I took last night at midnight. Oh, how was that? It was great. No problems. (laughs) You both went out to Long Island this weekend. And Tyler, you're back from your cold. And we have a nice studio audience here to welcome you back. That's right. They're all very happy that you're here. Uh, Tyler, how was it that. having bronchitis for a month? It was great. I got to cough every day, all day. I was congested for three weeks. It was excellent. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, Christian, you didn't get bronchitis, did you? No. Oh, good, good, good. Bronchitis in uh, May. You know, because when you, you know, you're romantically involved with each other, you might want to. Uh... <laughs> exactly. Anyway, uh, so you both went to Long Island this weekend. What for? Uh, I had uh, my roommate's thirtieth birthday. We went out to his uh, mom's house, had a little barbecue. It was fun. You went. Your roommate turned thirty this past week. Yeah. Wow. You know who else turned thirty this past week? Who? Uh, no, was it John Legend? Can't think of anything. I think Zac Efron. Bieber already? No, no, Zac Efron. I think he's thirty. Oh, really? is that why no. you did Baywatch? It was me. <laughs> That's right. What? I'm now an really? old man. So I could have sworn you were twelve. Oh, I wish. <laughs> but that would make many of the thoughts that you have of me illegal. So it's fine. Um, oh. But now that I'm official, yeah. Uh, but now that I'm officially no. thirty, sorry. I asked for giggity, but no. Oh, so I didn't hear that. I pondered pondered the validity of whether or not a giggity should be uh, thrown in there. Yeah. um, Well, now that I'm 30, I'm going to have to do the rest of the podcast in my Larry David voice. I want to talk to all of you guys about technology. Computers are nothing but a fan. Okay. Oh, I was figuring you just needed a lot more Finally, Maybe smoking from a pipe. Yeah. Is it monocle time? Yeah, I think it's monocle time. Anyway, um, so this week, this uh, this week's episode is about something. Something just dropped. Uh, this week's episode is about email again because last week, Christian, uh, we had a hard out uh, and we uh, did a very, you could say, academic uh, episode about email where we talked about the components to the modern email system. And what they are and what they do, what they mean, what these acronyms mean, and how they all piece together. And I warned you. And you warned me that it was much more complex than I thought it was. And you were right! Mm -hmm. So, this episode became a two-parter. And this week, we're going to talk about applications of email and and, and making modern HTML emails. It's not just sending email. And also, you know, email is a very powerful tool. But we'll get to that in a second. Um, it can cost you an election. <laughs> 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 yeah. 
<laughs> All right. Um, it, yeah, email is a very important tool, and don't make it seem like it's just someone's uh, risotto recipes and uh, you know yoga pants that they're looking at. It, you can do much more stuff. Many, many important things happen over email. But before we get to email, sorry, what was that? You said yoga we've pants. We've got our GitHub issues of the week. Our first good. Ugh. Another failed transition. Oh, you're speaking Hebrew now. Yeah. Oh, there you go. <laughs> Gesundheit. No, I was just praying. All right, let's try this again. Our GitHub issues of the week. Our first GitHub issue comes to us from Zerolog. And the question is, why do you need level rider adapter? The writer asks, hello, I wanted to ask why you need level rider adapter. That implements level rider if it right level calls... If if it right level just calls the right io dot writer method with no level, you Christian, what is this? So part of it is bad grammar, but uh, it's a uh, go. Was this written uh, by a computer for uh, zero uh, heap allocation logging, which is a pretty cool idea? But what is that? It means that when you log a message, it's much faster because you're not allocating any memory to the heap; it's just dealing with stack memory. Interesting. So just dumping data to a file rather than dumping it to something in memory? Yep. Well, no. No. It's just a matter of you normally have a stack and a heap, and when you want something right. to uh, live longer than the function which it was instantiated in, you move it to the heap. This logger does not do that at all. So it's much faster than a logger that would. And how does it avoid uh, doing that but still maintaining the data? By within a single function call being able to do the entire log. Wow, but what about um, what's the what's that philosophy about like units of computation, or like functions should be very limited in what they do? Oh, they are, and it still is. It's a matter of you, so you still have the a heap allocation of in, of what you're seeing here of the IO writer, which in Go uh, IO dot writer is a uh, system dot out dot print line. Well, that's the Java thing. But no, I know, but I'm saying, is that is that Go's version of uh, that? Well, no, that's more of like a uh, uh, fmt.print oh. line. But like that a what? Sorry? fmt.print line. Oh, okay. But, uh, so you still have to instantiate an I.O. writer, which can have heap allocation, but the action of actually logging in this library doesn't have heap allocation. And this issue is ab about why do you need this level uh, writer uh, level adapter uh, to consider uh, for things when you don't want to use a level. And uh, part of it, it's just uh, a design thing that's a bit uh, of a question. Gotcha. And, well, uh, it, it's entirely just design of uh, the project itself. Uh, I think uh, changing it would actually cause some complications, and I can see why it's actually necessary. So, why is it necessary? Uh, just uh, the way to achieve what it's doing uh, kind of does rely on this uh, level uh, right, uh, right adapter. Because if you are using leveled logging, which you should be, uh, you probably I've got my Apache on lo log level 9, Christian. It, I, I don't know what that is. But, it's a number. Uh, so this is like having info, debug, warn, error, fatal. Right. That fun stuff. Right. Yeah, log levels. Apache does log levels. Log level 9 is everything. That generates a huge ah. log file. Uh, yeah. Anyway, okay. Let's uh, let's move on to our next GitHub issue of the week. This one comes to us from Windows yet again. 
Hi, my OS is Windows 7. I'm compiled, and test.text.exe gives me an error. <laughs> Looks like I this guy... Don't, don't leave out the incorrect grammar. Oh, I'm trying to... I have to read this on a radio show, Christian. It's like, hi, hi, my, my OS, OS Windows, Windows Hello, 7. my OS Windows 7, and I compiled the test.exe, but I get error. The, uh, it says two failed unit. All right. It says, uh, it's no, compiling... No, but even better is the end is, what is problem? What is problem? Uh, global test device. So it's running unit tests. It looks like... No, it just makes... It's setting up a test environment. It's setting up a test. What is text.exe? That is a... So this is... Uh, so this is in the Google Protobuf Oh, library. I'm sorry. What test.exe? In the, in the... Look, it says, yeah, I'm compiled no, and text. Okay. Te- so he's running a, it's running a test, and it's failing on Windows... Uh, oh, look at this. See, program files x86, Microsoft Visual Studio 14.0, backslash, why are you using Windows to make this, dot exe. <laughs> yeah. Yep. And the, and the, what, so what is problem? The fact that it's Windows, really. But All right, all right. Um, but, no, it's a cool library, and it's very widely dependent upon one that Google has for... To, uh, sending messages back and forth in a very small manner. What is it? What's the library? It's protobuf. It's, For protocol uh, used, buffers. Yeah, it's used to serialize data into a binary format that can be used across languages. And yeah, ah. it's basically like, really, Windows is the error. Well, and that I, explains why there are no responses to his issue. That reminds me of uh, working on Windows, and I would get errors all the time for my file names being too long in the whole pass. Hmm. I think they fixed that. I'd like to. I'd hope they fix that. I was on Windows uh, 10 getting it. It was so annoying. Windows 10? Yeah. Oh, man. Like, come on, it. guys. Like. <laughs> okay. Our next GitHub issue of the week is from Cap and Proto, or it's for the library, uh, Cap and Proto. It's about gRPC support. Now, what is gRPC, Christian? So, gRPC is an RPC protocol that uh, remote it was procedure by call. Google. Yep. And it was, this one is uh, created by Google, hence the G. Ah. And it's an open source th- uh, protocol, and it, by default, relies on protobufs, uh, as you saw in the last As we uh, saw project. in the, yes. But Cap'n Proto is basically protobufs, but uh, a lot more performant. Interesting. Okay. Um, so the writer says, I'd like to volunteer to add gRPC code generation to the next CapNP tool. I'm heavily, I'm actively involved in the flat buffers plus gRPC integration, so I'm already familiar with the setup. I think we can achieve zero copy. with zero copy? That means Was that, that the no. Uh, so in uh, uh, particularly C plus plus, you talk about zero copy, where it's the idea of copying data as opposed to just moving it. Okay, so zero copy would just be like moving a pointer versus copying data. Gotcha. Uh, I think we can achieve zero copy by writing a custom gRPC-backed message buff- uh, builder, and from that builder, we can transfer buffers into the gRPC ecosystem cheaply. Might not be as fine-tuned as the Cap and Proto RPC implementation, but for people with existing gRPC code looking to improve serialization efficiency, having the option to try Cap and Proto without rebuilding the whole stack would be valuable. Does anyone have any pointers on where to start? Half pointers. <laughs> Oh, man, I just got that. It was pretty good. He's making a funny <laughs> GitHub. Sorry. Anyway. Um, so the response 
is there are two ways that you could design this. So what is it? The, the guy, the, the person, I want to assume their gender, the person uh, wants to add code into an open source tool? Well, it'd probably be a plugin. Uh, it's a, compi- a plugin for the uh, Captain Proto compiler gotcha. that would then allow you to write uh, syntax for gRPC, which are things like uh, in the actual uh, pay- uh, payload definition, you, you say that there's a method, and so then in your actual code, you implement a server and client side of that method, and then Captain Proto just uh, functions as a way to kind of seamlessly say, when you call this function in your client, that function then gets called in your server. Cool. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, gRPC is a pretty cool uh, protocol. It, it's funny because RPC is basically what all these buffer over, uh, overflow exploits do, but it's allowed. Doesn't well, it? there's there's certain ways to handle it. It's, there's a difference between remote procedure call and, and remote, remote code execution. execution. Yeah, interesting. This is you're intentionally doing it and you're handling it versus. You're kind of just forcing your way in there, ripping up everything, and uh, oh. just leaving it gaping wide. So it's... Wow. So this is like yeah. the... Uh... <laughs> that means two things. So that's uh, consensual versus non-consensual. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. And our last GitHub issue of the week is about memory consumption. Uh, in... The writer says... Hi... Is it normal? Badger consumes 300... To, what is Badger? So Badger is a key value store using LSM trees and write-ahead logs. Okay. And this is a very intre- and this is a very good question, because I would ask something like this. Hi, is it normal that Badger consumes 392 megs of memory while my database only holds 5 megs of stuff? Resident also, memory, CPU looks important. quite high. Sorry? Resident memory. That's important. Re- resident memory. What is resident memory? Well, there's resident, sorry, uh, it's resident memory, and I'm always forgetting if the other one is virtual or actual. It's, oh, it's I thought it was but, uh, physical and virtual memory, not resident. But I guess physical is, and um, resident would be interchangeable? Resident memory versus virtual memory. Interesting. So, yeah, resident memory is how much the process is, uh, currently has in main memory, the RAM, and virtual memory is how much the process has overall and, like, how much memory the process thinks it has versus how much uh, memory the process is using. Gotcha. The response is, it depends. Badger does allocate certain chunks of memory up front, irrespective of whether it's immediately used or not. It might be that. I haven't checked. Did you run a memory profiler to see what's consuming the memory? That might help. Uh, for the CPU, if nothing is going on, Badger won't consume much CPU. If you share your program or a profile report, I could have a look. I think Resident Memory could be a Tom Clancy novel. <laughs> resident Memory. Tom I agree with that. Resident memory. That's cool. You have no um, idea what the book's about, but it sounds tough. <laughs> um, yeah. Let's see. Uh, two weeks ago, we talked about ransomware. The WannaCry ransomware is still very nasty, and it is continuing its ravaging of many computers around the world. Well, the, if you're in, if you're Windows, I, I if you're right, if you're in the today. vulnerable target demographic, which is unpatched versions of Windows, so yet again, after everything is said and done, after all of the terror, the terrorizing news reports about oh your computer will explode, oh it's going to steal all your photos, if your computer is up to date, you're fine. And well, actually, no, I was going to say most of the people are running XP, but we found that was wrong. It's actually most of the people that got WannaCry are on Windows 7. 
which is odd because Windows 7 is very aggressive about those critical updates. So wouldn't that, like, shouldn't, did that many people have Windows 7 updates turned off? Yeah, yeah. I I, I never got WannaCry just because I haven't booted up my well, Windows 7. I bet you don't since. have an anti, oh, okay. But, well, yeah, yeah, but I have Windows uh, in a virtual machine. But um, I when I use Windows, SSD. I don't use antivirus because I don't do anything that, well, I guess if it's like the blaster worm, it's just bound to happen. We talked about mm-hmm. SMB honeypots. That's basically just an unpatched Samba port that's open. Yep. Yeah. All right. Well, then patch your stuff, people. That's really it. And, in fact, we found out that the National Health Service in the UK, uh, that was one of the biggest victims of this attack, refused to pay Microsoft. They had Windows XP computers that were end of life, and they refused to uh, create a service level agreement with Microsoft to continue updating Windows XP. So when I made that joke about them running IE6 in Windows XP, it was not really a joke. They are. They have custom ActiveX controls that are made for that version of IE, and they're just doing the, you know, let's just hope nothing bad happens and uh, it'll be fine. We don't have the money for it right now. And then your 17-year-old web browser, you know, and your 17-year-old version of Windows have huge security exploits that then become real problems after your stuff is end of life. So... Upgrade your stuff, and end-of-lifing operating systems is not, is not yet a nefarious corporate practice to force you to upgrade. Unless it's Apple. Apple does that. Yeah. Apple definitely does that, because I have a computer that has uh, uh, Yosemite, Sam, on it. And I can't, there are so many things that I can't do unless I upgrade to the newest version, which is ridiculous. I can't. Well, what can you do? Because I'm. Still I can't on... run a VM of iOS 10 on my uh, Sam installation. It says I have to upgrade to Sierra if I want to use the simulator okay. for iOS 10. That makes sense, would... actually. Uh, I, if it's, and if it's, it's a lot easier emulated. for the person building the simulator software to target a single host OS. It's not a single host OS because it also w- will work on future OSs. Yeah. Whatever. That's backwards compatibility for the host OS. Not for the simulator. Apple typically keeps the last two, the the newest version and the previous one, in the supported realm. And then what if you're too old, El Capitan. Okay, so that's what I'm on, and you know, you're I, probably I, fine. Yeah, I am absolutely fine. I didn't. Um, I also don't use anything but VMware. Actually, wait, let me double check that right now. To I, see can if you I'm... run an iOS 10 Xcode sim on? Uh, Yosemite, I mean, on LCAP? I don't know. I uh, See, I just do all of it through the uh, built-in X-Hive. X-Hive? The hypervisor. Oh. Built into OS X. Gotcha. No, but the Xcode simulator is an app. Yes, built on top of X-Hive. Right. What are we getting at? Anyway, patch your stuff, people. That's the moral of the story. Update your operating system, patch your stuff, and if you're on an old version of Mac OS, it is still getting software updates. Updated. And if you're using Windows XP and IE6, you're a dumbass. Throw your computer out a window and just get a new one. Because for $400, you can get a computer that won't be vulnerable to this ransomware and probably does all the same stuff that you do on Windows XP or just don't use Windows there's that too or yeah. don't use Windows but the people that are still using Windows XP IE6 have to they, there's some reason like there's the proprietary software like we mentioned or that they just haven't got a clue and then there's no, no. way that they're going to be able to you say oh Linux it's all Linux start up wine wine supports all that good stuff 
What did, but what did I just say? What? That the, peop- the people that are stuck on Windows XP with IE6 either are forced mm-hmm. to because of some bureaucratic reason like the NHS, or they haven't got a clue yet, so telling them to upgrade to Linux is a non-starter because they haven't even upgraded to Windows well, 7. To speak to the NHS bureaucratic thing, they could just make a policy to change it. That's entirely... If, N- if NHS wanted to go to Linux, that would be a smart move for them. Most of Europe's on Linux, actually. Yes, why are they patronizing a U.S. company? <laughs> yeah, they usually go out of their way to oh, not do no, that. Oh, no, that's, that's, see, that's Brexit. Yeah, they didn't want to just go full Europe with Linux like the rest of them. Anyway, um, something else happened this week. I had a birthday. Your roommate had a birthday, Christian. Um, the MP3 died. That's the day the music died. <laughs> exactly. The, the MP3, known as the MPEG Layer 3 uh, codec, stands for mm-hmm. compressor decompressor. Uh, the patents for it have expired. In fact, MP3 is a completely proprietary format. So, despite its world domination, every person that encoded an MP3 technically had to pay, or the author of the program that encoded the MP3 had to buy a license from the Fraunhofer guys. And uh, they, the Fraunhofer Institute uh, have patents and intellectual property rights to MP3 and other MPEG, MPEG-2, H.264, uh, and also MP4. And um, the patent rights for MPEG-2, MPEG-3, MPEG and H.264 expired, I think it was this month. And uh, it's really interesting because nobody really noticed. Like, I think I saw it on, on the subway somehow. I don't know. I think uh, most people just stream off of uh, Spotify, Apple Music, or... Uh, and that's the other thing, is that... We're, I think all of us are post... We're definitely post-CD. I mean, mm. MP3 allowed us to be post-CD. I have... Uh, when I was in high school, I ripped all my CDs to MP3s. So, interestingly, uh, from the, when I was talking to you, a bunch of the Spotify engineers the other week, uh, they were saying that they're... Uh, the, market, the market that they haven't really been able to tap into are the people who hold on to CDs. As that makes to sense. Because they managed to get... The first people they got, they, they were saying, were all the uh, former uh, just download-for-free types. And right, then right. The, and then they got the ones who were willing to pay iTunes per album. Right. But they haven't gotten the ones who want that physical CD. Right, that makes sense, because if they stop paying Spotify, then their music goes away. But if you, there's no monthly subscription to buy a physical copy of an album. Mm-hmm. The only problem is your computer doesn't have a disk drive anymore, so good luck ripping that. Anyway, we can talk more about it after our wonderful newsreel, as I pot it up. The death knell, the MP3 death knell, is nigh. Let's hear it from our news department. No money on presents, news to yous. The internet, the patent for audio products known as MPEG Layer 2, MPEG Layer 3, and H.264 have expired, meaning that the intellectual property they contain is no longer encumbered by legal constraints. The original developers of the MP3, the Fraunhofer Institute, have declined to renew their patents rather seeking to distribute their technology freely to the masses while letting it subside as new audio codecs come forth. Though originally available through a proprietary license and almost immediately obsoleted by a superior format, AAC 
According to AAC, MP3 rose to fame after a software pirate purchased the front half of encoder with a stolen credit card and put it on Napster. Music piracy, along with keeping local versions of CDs like Christian mentioned, has kept MP3s in the spotlight for almost 20 years. So what does the future hold? Newer formats with higher fidelity and possibly DRM built-in. Though many Americans are afraid of what happens next, we at least know the world still times and the truth marches on. And that's why this has been News to Use. Brought to you by Pneumonia. That's right. Perfect timing. MP3 has been around for 20 years, and I've been using it for about, wow, 13 years, 15 years? It's it's been about the same for me. Yeah. And I never, I mean, it it kind of, it organically left us because, ah, as I hit the microphone, it organically Mm. left us. This is why I shouldn't talk with my hand while I'm on a radio show. Um, it doesn't really do anybody any good. Move the pop screen. Anyway, um, no, we organically left MP3s because we all moved. We moved to some streaming formats, or we moved to downloadable content where the newer formats are not MP3. If you download something from the iTunes Store, you're getting it as an AAC. That's the Apple Audio Codec. Um, hmm. Downloaded stuff from the Google Store. I think you get an MP4 file. I believe, or whatever, Amazon Music is is probably a proprietary format. Spotify is proprietary format. Pandora doesn't download. Oh, it's just Spotify stream. is proprietary. Was isn't it? Uh, well, I know their protocol to stream the audio is basically HTTP two, slightly modified. I mean, it might be and a. Uh, I'm going to say the files. Like, if it has to download any discrete files, that's yeah, not in the standard MP3. I thought format. it was MP3 for the longest time. They but, might have changed it. The encoding of the audio itself, the audio stream, might be mm-hmm. an MPEG-3 encoded audio stream. But I'm going to guess that the, the files themselves are a proprietary format, so you can't just, like, dump the memory well, from the your phone is the, is and the get the... Built. The file format might be the MP3 is what I'm saying. What I'm saying is you can't dump... If, I, have, I have a bunch of stuff downloaded on my... Like, downloaded, downloaded with Spotify on the phone... I can't dump yeah. out my phone and get those MP3s. You can with iTunes. You can dump out all the yeah. uh, the, I, the MP3s off your got, phone that you get through iTunes. I've got my stuff saved to this, uh, Spotify as well. I bet I could actually find where they are saved. I don't know what file format they are. Uh, I That's know the, the thing. The I, bet, I, I would say though. it's an encapsulated MP3 file. How's that? That that is likely the streaming profile. Uh, pro, sorry. Streaming protocol itself, though, is not an MP3 streaming protocol. That is their own protocol that is slightly based off of HTTP2, actually. Speaking of encapsulation, you know what other format that was really big 10 years ago died and didn't even get an obituary like the MP3? Regular ecstasy. I think that's still around. Um, uh, no. That's on Molly now. <laughs> I think that's Molly, isn't it? No, the, like, 90s ecstasy had everything in it. Oh, okay. Anyway, um, for that podcast, listen to Arrowhead. No, uh, I just lost my train of thought. Oh, uh, the AVI file. Ah. Nobody uses AVIs anymore. Really? I thought all the porn still did. I mean, it probably was uploaded in 2002. I, I, I don't know, but I think that's what porn uses. I guess if you're using the Windows Media Encoder on your Windows computer, then you can generate an AVI file. An AVI is just a wrapper, like a QuickTime movie. It's just a wrapper for another video format. 
So, um, people in the .mov for, for format is also going away. Who downloads QuickTime movies? Who says the word QuickTime anymore? People I've been in using a QuickTime player. That's a different kind of quick and a different kind of time. So, um, <laughs> there is. We talk. I mentioned. Uh, I mentioned some newer formats. We talked about AAC. Whoa. Hello. Hello. Yeah. Hello? Something. Oh, I think Logic just died. Hold on. It died uh, like MP3. Sample rate unrecognized. Wow. I think my computer farted. Hold on one second, because now it's doing this delay thing. Uh, you know what? We're going to do one of these. Thank you for being afraid. Okay. Back. Sorry about that. And we're back. And we're back. I can't believe it. Something happened. And, uh, I don't know what happened with my computer. Now there's much more of a delay when I talk. Oh. Maybe you developed a stutter. I turned my off. No, but I needed it as a monitor on my voice, and this is just... Oh, we were doing so well. I've never seen that error in Logic before. My computer is 32 gigs of RAM. I don't know what it's doing. That doesn't mean anything. Are you saying you got no logical error? It got half funny. Yeah, it said sample (laughs) was unrecognized. How can that happen? Sample or sample rate? Sample. Because if it's sample, that sounds like malformed malformed input. Okay, I think this is better. Okay, yeah, I think this is better. There might be something wrong with the first track that I recorded. Sweet. I don't know what happened. Now we're fine. Anyway, thank you. Thank you, Blanche. I I always need you, ladies, in my life. Oh, you should... Anyway, um, okay. They were talking about uh, future audio formats. And there's one called MQA. That is Master Quality Authenticated. It is a British creation, as they like their audio, and uh, it, it promises a compressed yet high fidelity or highest possible fidelity uh, compared to the original source audio. Oh, like um, flack. It's not, loss, it's not, ex- it's not lossless, mm-hmm. and it's not free, so it's not flack. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not apples, so it's but not. Its goal is the same as Flax. It is, but I, I would honestly bet that the file sizes are much lower. Because hmm. Flax, uh, sorry, because Flax only has a fifty percent reduction in file size from the uncompressed wave or eighth, which is still a huge file. Uh, the way that MQA works, and this is another proprietary format, but if you go to mqa.co.uk, this is not a product placement. Uh, you can you can watch their little uh, or look at their little brochure of how it works, and it's folded. They, they say and this is what's really interesting, and that's why they have a really bad splash page that adds like five seconds to the effing load time for this thing. Um, okay, minus the horror. Oh my god, it went back to the top. Oh my god, never, never. Require the user to scroll to see content. That is that is dumb. That is stupid. Because it never thing. works right. You never get the good experience that you that you think you do when you show it to your your boss or other people on your team. It never works out. Anyway. So it has three folds, like a brochure. And the first fold is really quickly, this is cool stuff. The first fold is called the MQA core decoder. It says, this unfolds the MQA file once to deliver even higher than CD quality. And that's where it says all of the, the first fo- unfold un- recovers all of the direct music-related information. 
output is either 88.2 or 96 kilohertz. The second fold is the renderer. These products feature an MQA renderer which can complete the final unfold. Renderers can be great portable products such as USB DACs and headphones. For example, the AudioQuest Dragonfly, I don't know what that is, can connect to an MQA core signal and complete the unfolding of the MQA file. An MQA file renderer will include stream lock, but it is not able to decode an MQA stream or authenticate it. And then the last, and I guess you need an appliance, is products with an MQA full decoder unfold the file to the last time to deliver the highest possible sound quality. At this level of playback, you are hearing exactly what the artist created in the studio. And I don't know. It's really interesting because it's like a three-dimensional file format. A, it has rights management built in, which is not, you know, I don't like that, but it's good for people selling music. B, and is a very high fidelity. C. Hmm. So, I think this could be the future. It has some products and software that support it now. Uh, nothing that I've heard of. And uh, well, partners title, include Orinder, Bell Canto Designs, Brinkman, Carry Audio, Meridian, MSB MyTech, and NAD and Technics create MQA decoders. And the problem is, is the, the, the authenticated, the built-in rights management uh, streaming protocols have problems from time to time. Like, when you, uh, what is it? Like, the Blu-ray format, you have to update the firmware on your Blu-ray box in order for it to uh, keep playing discs, which is ridiculous. Um, I think there are issues with HDMI and authentication, and you have to have, like, the cable has to have the authentication, and the monitor has to have the authentication, and, like, all these peripherals all have to have the authentication bits in them. It can't just be a cable. And I think... As Apple is ruining headphones by making that a proprietary rather than a standard format, this might be a, a great way to uh, maximize that is by having these encoded, pre-authenticated digital streams that you then you can't copy at all because, it's, because the headphones that you're using are what authenticate against the uh, rights. I just think of how much uh, uh, I owe weight that causes, though. Yeah, but, you know, technology... The uh, the pace of technology has in- increased. What am I trying to say? Techno- stuff's really good right now. I think they have the budget for that kind of cost. It's that's a horrible no, perspective. No, I said I O wait, as in think about the amount of time it takes for that stream to be loaded and then. Oh wait, W A I T, not W E I G H T. The one with the A. Right. Yeah. Wait. Okay. Uh, yeah. I mean, I don't know about lip sync issues. If you have an MQ an MQA audio stream in a video. I don't know if, if, you know, that makes it, I don't know. But it's a brand new format, and it is very futuristic, and a, a three-dimensional file format seems pretty cool. Uh, I don't know. Right, Christian? Doesn't that, are there other 3D file formats? Not that I'm aware of. Yeah. Do you so, have to wear 3D earbuds to listen to this stuff? No, you have to wear earbuds that have the DRM built in. Oh. Yeah, it's much worse. Um, yeah. All right. So now that we've spent however long it is, oh, 36 minutes, that is not a power of two, unfortunately. Last week it was 32 minutes. We've spent 37 minutes now not talking about the theme of the show, which is... 
Mail time. Mail time. Mail time. Email's here. Email. Mail tour. Here's the mail. It never fails. It makes me want. All right. It makes me want to kill myself. Um. One thing that we want to talk about with email is what is what is one thing that we want to talk about with email, Christian? Uh, oh, actually, I should follow the outline that we made. All right. Quickly, let's go through the stuff that we talked about last week as our components of the email system and the history of the email system. The first mail program was was message, and that got changed to send message, I believe. Or was it the other? And that was when everybody was logging into mainframes, and you wanted to send a user logged in to the same mainframe a message. Right. And then it just dropped the message in that user's folder, and that was the message. Uh, after that, there was X400, which was the first enterprise-level mailing system that was uh, created by the U.S. government or Department of Defense. And... Uh, has security and authentication built in, unlike SMTP and POP, which are simple mail, mail transport protocol. Well, and the SMTP post is the one that still sends the mail between a- any one server, but then POP is an email client to a email server. Right. Um, and X400 was at the heart of Microsoft Exchange, which was also an extremely pop, still is, but not as much as it was 10 years ago or 15 years ago for enterprises. Extremely popular, really quick, really well-syncing email. Um, uh, I still am fascinated for, by Exchange and Active time. Directory and stuff. Sorry? For the time. For the time. I said especially also, 15 years ago. Yeah, um, but it was also terrible to manage. You had to do that Active Directory stuff. What? Yeah. I, it's really, I don't know, it's really cool. I, it's really cool how you can have just like a, 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 a white-label computer, and then you log in for the first time, and it has all your stuff. And you can log off, and you go on to another computer, and it's like the same computer. Ask a 90s sysadmin, or t- early 2000s sysadmin, how they felt about that. No, I mean, it was probably hell for them, but for me it was cool. Um, what else? So we have message transfer services, message transfer agents, message user agents, which are the things that you use to read mail. Uh, your inbox is a message store. We talked about email forwarding. We talked about MIME types and secure MIME. We talked about PGP and GPG. We talked about secure email with start TLS and, and secure SMTP, which has problems because it's tacked on after the fact, unlike the X400 stuff that has it baked right in. But still, nobody uses X400, probably because it's right there. Anyway, um, there's uh, DKIM, which is domain keys. And SPF, which is... Oh, I forgot what SPF is. The suntan lotion stuff. Yeah. What is it? It's that... Uh, that's the text record. Right? Oh, Sender right. policy it's framework. Text record that framework. be a cert record, actually. Okay. Sender policy framework. I don't know why I didn't have that in there. Uh, right. And DKIM and sender policy frameworks work to make sure that the person that the email is addressed to actually is the server that you're sending it to and the, me- and the person that the email is addressed from is actually sending it. And that, combined with DNSSEC, would actually create a very secure email system. But what type of email do you send? Do you just type hello world? Do you type let's invade Syria tomorrow at 3 p.m.? Do we type what? What type of things do we put in the email? Tyler, what type of email do you like to send? Uh, junk mail. Junk mail. Yeah. yeah, like hot girls looking for you in your area. Yeah, yeah. Sexy singles are uh, are online right now. Ah, I got you. I, I prefer kind of those uh, auto warranty is about to expire emails. Oh, yeah. 
Nigerian principles. Most of mine are, cool. are actually uh, salespeople from tech companies talking about my GitHub and then how their product could help me. They wow, hound you like that. a great way to talk about yourself, Christian. Crowbar so and a nice personal detail. That's, no, I said make. Yeah, we oh, said make. send. Christian sends himself emails trying to recruit himself. Christian sends himself emails from anonymous addresses that say how good his GitHub is. I saw your GitHub, man. It's awesome. Did you make a bot that has messages that sound like they weren't written by you and then they kind of rotate randomly? No, I make a bot that tries to tweet anti-Trevor Noah stuff at Donald Trump. Ooh. That is a very specific bot. Anti-Trevor Noah stuff at Donald Trump? Yeah. Anti-Trevor Noah at Donald Trump, not at Trevor Noah anti-Donald Trump. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, before we get into some more hot water, uh, the swamp is pretty hot today. Uh, let's talk about hi- un- uh, hybrid email design. The problem with, and I love talking about problems, as you know, the problem with modern email is that, or HTML email in general, is that it's a horrible melange of 1990s HTML and modern HTML. And responsive emails like responsive web pages do exist but the they're almost an oxymoron they're almost an anachronism when you pair the two styles of of coding together because you can you combine you can combine things like media queries the at media thing in css with the horrible 90s style table-based layout with cell padding and cell spacing attributes and everything you have to set the body margin to zero and all that stuff so, the, the, but it also presents an interesting problem because we have a ton, a ton of different mail clients. They all have different restrictions on what they allow and what you can put in HTML email and how they render it. In fact, there's a company that makes a web browser and an email client, but yet they don't use the web, the, uh, web renderer for their web browser in the mail client for their HTML email. And Christian, what company am I talking about? All of them. Oh. No, there's one <laughs> really big example. Uh, well, let's see. Uh, there's Thunderbird and Firefox. There's no, Google Microsoft. and Gmail. There's uh, uh, Microsoft. Uh, Microsoft and Inbox. They all don't do that. It's Microsoft. Microsoft uses... Chrome doesn't have an... A desktop app for your email doesn't do they? I mean, Google doesn't have a desktop app for your email, do they? There's an electron version of Gmail, I think, or Inbox. Interesting. Well, Microsoft uses the Microsoft Word editor in sorry renderer. Let me let me take a step back because this is too ridiculous. Okay, Microsoft uses the HTML renderer in Microsoft Word, which is somehow different than the renderer in Internet Explorer or Edge to render HTML email in Outlook and Outlook Express. And I actually don't use Outlook Express anymore. Uh, in Outlook. Why? That's ridiculous. Why does Word have a different renderer than Internet Explorer? And why are they not using the Internet Explorer renderer in Outlook? Well, if, like I said, they all don't do that. But Microsoft has had this problem for a decade. So did Thunderbird and Firefox. Okay. Why do they do that? I don't know. Well, that's nice. Um, <laughs> if, if great you're insight. For logic and email, there is the thing. Uh, but the thing is, is that because they're building other, maybe it's different teams. Maybe it's some kind of 
Oh, uh, yes, it's Side effect of having a giant company? I would say a lot of it's also legacy code. Legacy code. But I mean, well, whatever. So these email clients typically have more belligerent and less forgiving renderers than the web servers that the same companies make. And most people read email on their phones these days, which presents an interesting problem as I talked about creating a responsive email message. So... As mobile email consistently opens above 50%, it's increasingly clear that email campaigns need to be designed with mobile subscribers in mind. Desktop-only email campaigns are quickly being relegated to the dustbin as subscribers expect better experiences no matter where they are or what device they're using. Don't use a Windows phone. Designers looking for more control over their email campaigns are now using two major techniques to ensure their emails look great everywhere. Responsive email design and hybrid coding. The way they use these techniques, though, is the source of much confusion in the email world. Responsive email design is basically like responsive web design, where you have your media queries and CSS, and you use tables uh, like 1990s HTML. Messages in e HTML email are composed with nested tables, just like the 1990s internet was. And you have to use all of the 1990s attributes, just not in caps. So you even, it even says... In this example, TD, BG color equals hex. And you have to write in there. And as many, via line equals top. Font tags, uh, cell padding, cell spacing, all this stuff that you thought you could forget, you actually need to use an HTML email. And even if, let's say you're using a nice service like MailChimp or MailJet or Constant Contact that's supposed to help you out, chances are it's better if you use if you manually encode as many attributes to uh, style things uh, versus CSS, because the most amount of restrictions that email carriers and email services impose is on styling and not necessarily HTML and styling and scripting and not necessarily the HTML attributes that are used. Sorry for the long rant, guys, but this is why Christian told me this was a really long topic. This, um, this format actually this uh, this. A uh, whole article actually leaves out a third possible possibility. Okay, well, we can talk to you about that after we finish this. Sure. That's great. It makes Fan it, no, that yeah. is great, Tyler. Um, the standard width for emails, for whatever reason, is 600 pixels wide. Now, that was created when there was, when there was a standard width for desktop websites, which at the time was 800 pixels wide, and then it went up to 1024, and now there's no standard width for desktop pages because everybody has a different sized monitor. You can probably say 1080p is okay, but there's no de facto, you know, everybody has, it, assume a thousand lines of, of horizontal or vertical resolution. No, horizontal resolution. Anyway, so for the time being, HTML email still is 600 pixels wide, which means that on most desktop computers, it leaves a giant letterbox, and on most phones, it's too wide. So... Um... What do you do? You have to make it responsive. You have to make the table fluid. Use and do this thing that I've been advocating everybody do for years. Use percentages and not pixels. Unless you really have to use pixels, like you're cutting up an image. If you're cutting up an image, you have to use pixels or else it'll look jagged. But if you use percentages and you just say 80%, then whatever viewport you're on, uh, it'll just be 80% of that. It'll automatically scale down to the phone. So Except first, be careful if you're dealing with portrait and landscape and using percentages. 
that's also true because you ca- you could have this thing where as soon as you turn it landscape it blows up yep also i know that ios has this issue i've had this issue with responsive uh websites where if you go from portrait to landscape back to portrait that's supposed to be a symmetrical operation it actually in if turning it to landscape increases the font size then when you turn it back to portrait it will stay increased <laughs> wonderful it's yeah i don't know why <laughs> only seen it on ios that's supposed to be a symmetric operation and it's not anyway Basically, with your nested tables, use percentages, make fluid tables wherever possible, and if you need explicit, uh, explicit dimensions and explicit units, you have to use pixels. Use a media query to target the width of the screen. And as I said, and I didn't know this until doing the research for this piece, that a lot of email services now do accept media queries in your CSS. And at least we can have solace in the fact that there are people who are trying to make HTML email more beautiful and more compatible and more like its its brethren of web pages. Um, so that's I mean responsive so, email is pretty pretty cut and dry. Sorry. Mm-hmm. No, I was, I was looking to move this along because I'm yeah, pretty, no, pretty no, curious I know. Uh, hybrid approach is ignoring media queries, but like just use percentages everywhere. Images will scale to their natural width if you leave them, if you don't uh, encode a width or height attribute. However, many email clients, or sorry, many message services like MailChimp or MailJet, Constant Contact, will, uh, will, will want you to encode the dimensions of the image as, as HTML attributes, like I said before. Explicit HTML attributes as much as possible. Um, so I'm curious and then, about this MJML. Well, hold on, hold on, hold on. Wait, wait, wait. wait. There's, well, there's two things. We have to talk about we have to talk about the biggest problem with HTML email, which is QAing it. Uh, but before we do that, Tyler, what's the third way? The third of way doing HTML email. So that's kind of like uh, not reinventing the wheel, which both these guys, uh, both these approaches seem to be uh, talking about. Uh, the, both of these approaches do not reinvent the wheel. We have. Uh, MJML, which is MailJet's markup language that does reinvent the wheel, but we're saving that for later. What's your third By reinventing the wheel, I mean, there's plenty of libraries out there where you can write it once and it'll format it correctly. Um, foundation for emails was, was my go-to choice. I didn't... That was the one I was going to ask about, mm-hmm. as well as uh, uh, the pre-mail, pre-mailer uh, uh, RubyGem. Oh yeah, uh, have have you? Yeah, I've seen the premailer Ruby gem. That one works fine. And Foundation for Email is just a little more flexible and lets you use nice Foundation things um, and just basically Foundation write it is like, a framework. Yeah, so it's as and, if yeah. you're writing normal regular HTML. And, and they then, have email templates for you, so you're not composing mm-hmm. an email from scratch. You're using the framework to use a, one of their pre-made templates to then fill in your stuff. Yeah, and you don't have to write it in a bunch of nasty um, tables and whatnot. You can just write it normally, and then it will convert it and make it uh, really seamless for all the all the different browser engines and HTML engines. Now, have you actually tested it on on different email clients to see that it does actually look like that? I like it got says it does? lucky and didn't have to actually implement the project. Okay. <laughs> so, My no. biggest gripe with virtualization and emulation services and these things that, or, you know, write once, deploy many, is that very rarely, I'm not saying it doesn't happen, they do the same thing, Adobe has Browser Lab, where they're like, oh, you just, you know, if it looks good in here, it'll look good everywhere. 
very rarely does that actually, actually, really work in the wild. And, and well, anything I wouldn't trust that Adobe for that, but I might trust Foundation. Yeah. No, no, no. But I mean, just even. But Foundation's even just, not uh, trying to emulate anything. It's trying. It's to... use. They have pre-vetted. Uh, templates that you're using. Yeah. So if you want Which, to use a template, use so, a template. That's fine. Well, so another so approach, though, that solves this, that is kind of a different approach, is Premailer, where you're writing a separate uh, CSS file like you would with a website, and then this Ruby gem will actually uh, input all of those CSS uh, um, definitions into Properties. your, uh, into your uh, HTML for you. As a style on, property it, or as, a, as attributes where necessary? As a style property, based so like if on... you did okay, so if you did background color in CSS, it wouldn't translate that to a BG color attribute. No, it would do this into a style equals. Okay, there are some mail services that don't allow any style attributes in HTML. That's huh. why I advocate using as many old school uh, yeah old school HTML attributes as possible because some mail clients will just ignore anything styled equals. And I thought they all had to be inlined in the email. I thought that was preferred. No, no, no. When you do, if you do inline styling, yes. My, but I'm saying that sometimes that's not even good enough. Some some mail clients will just remove anything because you could put a lot of stuff in CSS. I don't make these rules, guys. We just have to live by them. And Tyler, no, you definitely you, you, remember those days using Litmus, which is a, a QA tool for email. Or really anything. I believe um, I remember you getting pulled onto that project and stressing out about it. And I didn't have to because I've never really done emails like that. Right. But I did. And we had to test them across, I'm not kidding, 20 different email clients, including three different versions of Outlook. And when you get Outlook 2003 and Outlook 2013 to look good, but then somehow Outlook 2010 doesn't, you just want to pull your hair out. <laughs> So there are something in, in this uh, – the, the other article about responsive email did mention this. Uh, there is something you can do for specifically Microsoft email clients, and I would hope that whatever email service you're using, uh, that the service leaves these in, conditional comments. Because Microsoft really IE conditional comments, which were pulled out of IE with uh, Edge. They don't work in Edge. No but more. for yeah, which, good luck They're not then. in 11 either. They stopped at 10, I think. Oh, yeah, they're not in 11. Yeah, you're right. So the, the problem is, is that conditional comments were very, very useful for Microsoft's temperamental web browsers. This allows you to insert specific styles and even markup that are specific to an Internet Explorer version or, re, or, or a series of IE versions. It's basically and the only way developers survived 10 years ago. It was. And it's funny because I... Uh, I never liked doing conditional comments unless it was for markup. I always found a browser-specific CSS hack. People would rag on me for years about it. And uh, then, it, then they became obsolete. The joke's on them. Anyway. Um, so QAing for email is, po is, is really one of the... It's possibly the most difficult part of the developing uh, email development process. Because... There are many more email clients than web browsers, and there are many more email renderers than web, than web renderers, and each one of them have, uh, have their own quirks, and, the, and each email client has its own restrictions, and each email service has its own restrictions, and that's why you always get the bottom of the barrel. Um, so that's email QA, and 
HTML email and responsive email. Let's talk about phishing and email exploits. Phishing, I'll get the uh, legal definition here just to be 100% correct, is an attempt to obtain sensitive information such as usernames, passwords, and credit card details and indirectly money, often for malicious reasons by disguising as a trustworthy entity in, in, in electronic communication. The word is a neologism created as a homophone for phishing, with an F, due to the similarity of using bait in an attempt to catch a victim. So, basically, I'm pretty sure we've all seen these types of emails, where the email looks like it's from somebody that it actually is not, and they want you to click a link in the email, and the link may actually be a different link than the text that it says in the email. That goes to a page that may have the logo of the, play, of the company that this, this email says it might be, and then it might ask you to enter your username and password, as you would to log on to the legitimate service, and then they've captured your information. And it's game over. So phishing is really big uh, because it, you know, you, it's, a element, it's an element of social engineering combined with uh, software exploits. What is a Unicode player? So, Christian. Good question. Uh, that looks like that was copied over wrong from somebody. It's just using Unicode uh, to uh, actually modify the URL. Like, uh, there, for a while there, there was a Unicode version of G that wasn't the actual traditional G that people were using to say Google.com, and it wasn't Google the company, oh. Google.com. It was a different Google. And that's only been possible recently because I think it was a year or two ago where they enabled uh, higher or Unicode for domain names. It's technically not actually supported officially, but yes. Right. I'm waiting for the phishing attack that comes from an emoji domain. <laughs> um, there are many different types of phishing techniques. Uh, there's spear phishing, uh, which we just talked about. Right? Is that the same? Yeah. No, that's email and spam. Spear phishing... Uh, while traditional phishing uses a, a spray-and-pray approach, also Christian on a Saturday night, uh, meaning <laughs> mass oh, yeah, emails... praying happens afterwards, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. That means two things. Uh, meaning mass emails are sent to as many po people as possible. Spear phishing is a much more targeted attack in which the hacker knows which specific individual or organization they are after. They do research on the target to make sh the attack more personalized and increase the likelihood of the target failing, falling into the trap. Ooh, Email slash spam, we talked about that. Web-based delivery, which is men in the middle. Um, the fisher traces details during a transaction between the legitimate website and the user. Or you could end up on a domain name, like Christian said, if you type in a different G than the real letter G. Or type Google instead of Google. I went to um, Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, let's see. Uh, link manipulation, which I'd like to think if you're already on a malicious web, web page, it's done this. Oh. I'm thinking about it too literally. Link manipulation is a technique in which the fisher sends a link to a malicious website, but when the link opens, it actually goes to a different URL than the text that's displayed on the page. Ooh, sneaky and easy to do. Yes. Uh, Ahref equals something else than the text. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Keyloggers, pretty self-explanatory. Uh, to prevent keyloggers from accessing personal information, information, sorry, secure websites provide options to use mouse clicks to make entries through a virtual keyboard. Uh, Trojan, Sneaky. Uh, malvert, malvertising. That's a great way to say porn storm. 
Malvertising is malicious advertising that contains active scripts designed to download malware or force unwanted content onto your computer. Like a porn storm. Uh, <laughs> session hijacking. Fisher exploits the session and control me- mechanism to steal info from the user. That sounds like a man in the middle. Yep. Uh, exactly. Content injection. That is something that opt- uh, Cablevision does if I enter a domain that doesn't exist. Uh, content injection is the de- is the technique where the Fisher changes part of the content on a page that is usually reliable. Phishing Ooh. through search engines. You can SEO le- illegitimate pages. Um... When the user tries to buy the product by entering credit card details, it's collected by the phishing site. There are many fake bank websites offering credit cards to, or loans to users at a low rate. Yeah, if it looks too good to be true, it probably is. There's voice phishing and SMS phishing, uh, which just gets you to dial a number internationally or text an international number or go to a phishing website by a link in a text message. Malware, regular old malware, and ransomware, like WannaCry. I didn't realize there were so many different types of phishing. And, well, the one that wasn't on there is uh, DNS hi- hijacking. Okay, and what's that? So, that's uh, D- uh, basically uh, saying you, uh, you request the correct address, but uh, it's actually being hijacked and putting you to a wrong IP address. And ah, that's, so the, that's, does that mean that the DNS server is compromised? No. I was getting to that. Okay. Uh, so DNS goes over both UDP and TCP, and unfortunately, not many resolvers, aka clients, use TCP. And it makes. Can you it mention a lot that easier. Google was doing TCP for DNS? They are, and uh, it has a lot of benefits. Uh, a lot of uh, DNS servers are, are, are have uh, TCP as an afterthought because a very few clients do, do UDP and the overhead. Uh, the the DNS server I work on, though, we do put a lot of focus on TCP. That's cool. And um, so with with uh, UDP, the way of doing DNS hijacking is uh, since the resolver is saying I need the uh, IP address for this particular URL, if you somehow know it's being requested or you just get lucky, you can send uh, UDP packets to the resolver saying, okay, here's the IP address, even though it's not the actual IP address, it's whatever you tell it to be. Ah. And you, you have to do IP spoofing and all sorts of fun there to get that to uh, work validly. But gotcha. we, as we've proven on uh, previous shows with UDP, you can, in fact, do that. That's right. I think we might actually have a Russian hacking example still on our GitHub at pullrequest.net slash GitHub or github.com slash pullrequest. Mm-hmm. And then uh, uh, the, T- the TCP side is a bit more difficult, yet you have to do the uh, man-in-the-middle attack, and it's, it is much more difficult to hijack those. That makes sense. There's also... Uh, uh, exploits put into images that you then serve in an email and then the cool thing is that the even the preview of the message may trigger the exploit so I know this was an issue in Outlook that if you had one of these maliciously encoded messages with an image with a maliciously encoded image that just Outlook being open and then it receiving the message and then generating the preview which it automatically does that activated the exploit and uh, that is pretty, that's pretty cool uh, because it's so low level and you don't really notice that it's happening because it, the preview does render the image. I mean, does render the message. Um, Microsoft has had a notorious buffer overflow vulnerability in JPEG uh, parsing. And I'm, I'm no, I know that there are other ways that you can hide malicious content in images that aren't necessarily JPEGs, but... 
Windows had a very nasty JPEG vulnerability that uh, was patched in 2004. And um, that was a lot of these emails. That's where this story with Outlook came from. And 2004 was definitely the heyday of Outlook. Uh, right before, right when Gmail launched, actually. Um, but yeah, it's... Uh, I mean, that's it. It's just a Microsoft's graphic device interface. GDI Plus has a vulnerability that can be uh, exploited with a maliciously crafted JPEG image. Also, Windows has this trick where you can encode things into images by using the plus. I forgot the command, but there's a way that you can say, like, the JPEG plus another JPEG encodes the one JPEG into the other one, but you don't see it, it's just there. I'll have to, I'll have to pull it up for next time. Uh, this was something from a very old tech TV show mm -hmm. called Cybercrime. Anyway, JPEG image parsing, and then uh, SMTP attacks, which are just attacks against SMTP servers. Um, there's account enumeration, which is on any service. You can, uh, you can try this attack, but most services... Who most people who develop these services try to keep that in mind. For instance, if it says, if you enter your email to log on to something, not necessarily just an email server, but anything, and it says, this user is not on the system, you could then figure out all the users on the system. So the best way to say that message without it revealing that fact is that your credentials are invalid. Please try again. Um, let's see. Oh, there's a Python script that does that, that enumerates uh, accounts on the server. Good to know. Um, uh, automatic SMTP relay testing. We last week we talked about the da the dangers of allowing mail relaying, um, and there are auto there are automated programs for that. Uh, there's manual. There's obviously the manual port scanning and automated port scanning on SMTP servers and the standard OS level and, and software and server level exploits. Um, email header disclosures. The a message returned from that server may. In, uh, contain a lot of information, uh, and then generally malware that you can infect on a SMTP server. A lot of, lot of attack vectors that are possible. The more you know. The more you know. Basically, now, if you're using the internet, you're standing in the middle of public with your pants down. Yes. yes. Uh, and now there's this thing, now that we've talked a lot about email, I'm going to call this the future of email. Because everything, unless Google comes out with a library to compete against this. I don't know why MailJet decided to make their own markup language. They're just a company. But MailJet, that is a competitor with MailChimp and Mail Animals, whatever, uh, created a markup language that, with the power of React, allow you to create basically an email app that sends out as a regular HTML email. Yeah, it's but, just exporting it from my understanding. Yeah, and you can have a, um, with the, they have components, uh, here's a carousel component, um, there's a bunch of, there's a bunch of stuff, but being easy so, to use doesn't mean that MJML is not powerful. Uh, no, but how is that any different from, say, like, uh, Chroma Code's React HTML, or email, sorry, React HTML email, or Foundations um, for email, or just, a uh, pre-mailer? Uh, they they probably all end up doing the same thing, which then has the risks of what I mentioned earlier, which is all of this transcoding and transmogrifying and transforming, all this trans stuff is mm -hmm. Stop being transphobic. going to have ramifications on 
Maybe not if you use Chrome to look at it on Gmail, but if you're using, if you're on an NHS computer with Microsoft Outlook 2000 and Windows XP, it might not look so good. Well, you're probably locked out of your computer anyway, then. That's true. So what good is your email? But, um, yeah, uh, even more depressing, they make Outlook for phones. Yeah. And the Outlook for phone drains the battery so much. In, yeah, anyway. Um, no, that, I'm, I'm sure that's what this does. And if you do use your React-based email, uh, email libraries, that uh, you'll end up with another horrible kludge of technologies. You have the wonderful hundreds of files and layers of components from React combined with the horrible HTML email that you're going to... The horrible HTML in the email that you're going to have to write combined with the very limited scripting. I'm actually quite impressed that you can get some amount of JavaScript into an email. Because I have not... I haven't done that yet. I've made many an HTML email, but none with JavaScript in them. Um, you can also make a carousel without using JavaScript. And I would hope that this component does. With uh, your React HTML email thing, Christian, it looks like you can... Uh, in the config, you can actually uh, enclose the platforms that you want to validate against, which is pretty cool. Uh, there's, I mean, it even says right here, Gmail, Gmail, Android, Apple Mail, Apple iOS, Yahoo Mail, Outlook, Outlook Legacy, Outlook Web. Look at that. Maybe mm-hmm. we're on the verge, uh, we're on the precipice of a new era in HTML email where we actually may be able to write some modern stuff. Wow. Yeah, they do it in Foundation for Email. I told you. Tyler, that's <laughs> templates. That's not what this is. You don't believe it, but this is the same thing. It just takes code and turns it into some other code that actually works with all the things because it yeah, turns no, it into old legacy code, there. which is exactly what... The format, foundation foundation is not does templates. not use templates. Foundation uses its own custom markup language and nice classes and stuff. It and says then, get 11 customizable responsive HTML email templates you can get using the, template, the foundation but you don't framework. Have to. You can write it raw and it'll just poop out a nice thing that's full of a bunch of table things. Okay. It'll poop it out. It's like React Native. Mm. Okay. And it looks like Foundation for Emails even has a SAS version. Good. Now okay. do you believe I it? should have known that. <laughs> now you know. I tried to tell you. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, this is good. So, all right, Foundation. And um, wasn't Foundation a horrible PHP framework? No, it's a CSS framework. What was the bad? Oh, Symphony. Okay. Weren't all You're PHP right. frameworks a bad PHP framework? Not the one that I wrote. Um, I can attest it was. (laughs) Anything else on email? Don't use Outlook. It sucks. Don't use Outlook. It sucks. Don't use Outlook for the phone. Don't use uh, Windows. Don't use Windows. Uh, But Microsoft, ironically, is making good moves these days. That's that's, that's irony for you. I want a Surface. I want a Surface Studio really bad. If someone wants to donate one to the show, I'll uh, give you a fat review on it. <laughs> oh, I played with the Surface Studio once. It's such pretty cool. I like the little... Uh, Did it have the, the color cylinder wheel? thing you get with I it. I want to get my hand the on that wheel. nubby. It's a change wheel for colors. It's a nubby. Did it have the uh, Windows 10 Creators update on it? Uh, oh, the one that broke... Uh, Why did it break? Everything. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, don't use Windows. But, you know, then your uh, thing isn't going to work. Your ashtray is not going to work if you use Linux. I don't know if there are drivers for that yet. <laughs> there are. Oh, well, I then did... definitely even another ver- reason to not use Windows. Windows um. is good for Cubase. That's about it. Yeah. Cubase and Game. All right. As our last story for the evening, let's end on a happy note. 
Three Nigerian scammers get 235 years of total jail sentence in the U.S. You may have heard of hilarious Nigerian scams, but my all-time favorite is this one. A Nigerian astronaut has been trapped in space for the past 25 years and needs $3 million to get back to Earth. Can you help? God. <laughs> Click this link to donate. Oh, so, no way. I didn't even know Nigeria had a space program. Words out wow. of my mouth. Is this a GoFundMe? Okay. <laughs> uh, moreover, Nigerians are also good at promising true love and happiness, but, you know, love hurts. Those looking for true love and happiness have lost tens of millions of dollars over the Nigerian dating and romance scams. These criminals spend their whole day trolling the online dating sites like Tyler, looking for contact email. No, I'm sending, sorry. And sending, the, and sending off hundreds of thousands of fraudulent emails awaiting the victim's response. A U.S. federal district court in Mississippi, where the rule of law does exist, has sentenced three such Nigerian scammers to a collective 235 years in prison for their roles in a large-scale international fraud network that duped people out of tens of millions of dollars. The three Nigerian nationals were part of a 21-member gang of cybercriminals, of which six, including names, were extradited from South Africa, that's not Nigeria, to the Southern District of Mississippi in July 2015 to face Chase's charges in the case. One of them is uh, 30, he faces 95 years in prison. One of them is 31, faces 115 years in prison. And one is 45, but only faces 25 years in prison. <laughs> Uh, they were found of consp guilty con of conspiracies to commit bank and uh, bank fraud and money laundering, which is why they've been given longer prison sentences. Uh, until now, the Justice Department has char charged a total of 21 suspects in this case. Twelve defendant defendants have already pleaded guilty to charges related to the conspiracy, while 11 have been sentenced to date. The gang has been operating since 2001 and has run a variety of online scams. Uh, let's see. Once the gang members gained the victim's trust and affection, they would convince them to carry out their money laundering schemes and, la and launder money from other rackets via MoneyGrams and Western Union, or to resend electronics and other goods bought with stolen credit cards to countries where they could be sold for a profit. The gang members were arrested by South African police in a joint with U.S. ICE and Homeland Security and the U.S. Postal, Postal Inspection Service. Huh. What? And take that. We actually got the Nigerian scammers. We got them. They, they were arrested them, by a, They were arrested by a mailman. <laughs> yep. <laughs> the postmaster general. Yeah. Um, he is a general. That's another top um, fancy model. No. So I think Ed Helms in uh, Brooklyn Nine Nine. Or or huh. or that episode of Seinfeld. Hmm. With the postmaster general in it. Yes. Um, yes. Anyway. Newman. What? <laughs> <laughs> oh, the show. Uh, that means two things. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, that show. Two Newmans. Yeah. Anyway, well, on that bombshell, I think it's time to end. So, uh, Tyler, do you approve of this week's pull request? Sure thing. How about you, Christian? LGTM. Well, then let's all hit merge. And we'll see you next week, right here on Pull Request. This has been the Pneumonium Production. The views and opinions expressed on Pull Request do not necessarily reflect those of Pneumonium LLC or its subsidiaries.